to turn in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're just going to be reading a few verses from verse 15. Ephesians 5, verse 15, that's on page 1176 in the uh, Bible that we generally use here in the church. If you haven't got a Bible and you'd like one, uh, we have folks who our stewards can come down uh, the aisles and distribute them to you. Just put your hand up and they will happily bring you a copy so that you can follow through in the things that we're looking at. So that's Ephesians 5, verse 15, page 1176. And as you're looking it up, just to say that because this is the start of half-term week, uh, we're taking a break from our normal series in Romans that our lead pastor, Paul Reese has been taking with us. And we're just going to be concentrating on these verses over the next couple of weeks. So we haven't been in Ephesians, as it were, before. I'm breaking in. So what we do need to say is that Ephesians is one of the great letters. And its first three chapters are full of doctrine. And then it goes on to try and apply that doctrine. Uh, chapters 4 and 5... And we are cutting in at probably what is the climax of the argument that Paul is making. So Ephesians 5, verse 15, and here is that summary verse. Be very careful then how you live. So it's the summary of what's gone on before. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the word of God. 1440. Um, that's the year, not the time. 1440 had a profound impact upon Western culture. For in that year, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. We say he invented the printing press. In fact, the Chinese had invented the printing press about 400 years previously. But for Western Europe, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, and it was going to transform the whole way that people lived and thought. At that time, if you were living in 1440, you were just an ordinary uh, peasant in Europe, you would have had no idea about the printing press, but within a hundred years you would have done because it affected everything. The world was never going to be the same again. 1440 was the key year. 2007 will probably be looked upon in the same light. It was the year that really signaled the start of the digital revolution. Steve Jobs introduced iPhone, more texts were sent than phone calls, Netflix was launched, Facebook opens up to anyone who has an email account, the Android platform is made available, Twitter takes off, the Kindle is unveiled, it was the year of the cloud and it was the start 
of the App Store. And to my older listeners, no, I'm not speaking in tongues. For 2007 has changed everything. Out of interest, hands up if you have a mobile phone. Yep, okay, hands up if you have it here. Hands up if you are following the reading on your mobile phone. Yeah, there we go. And uh, just hands up if you use digital technology in your working and everyday life. Yeah, so it's pretty overwhelming that this digital revolution, uh, of which probably the year 2007 is what future historians, if the Lord tarries, will look back upon and uh, know this was a significant time. Now, why do I mention these things? It's because those of us who have been saved and rescued by the amazing work of God, those of us here who profess to live under the loving rule of King Jesus, we need to work out our faith in the new context of the digital age. We need to understand the new pressures as well as the opportunities that are ours at this time. For pressures there are. We live in an age of greater hurry and distraction than ever before. A recent study found that the average mobile phone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Another study on millennials put the number at twice that. And apparently our ability to concentrate is declining. It's been calculated that our attention span is dropping each year. In the year 2000, before the digital revolution, it was 12 seconds, which isn't much at all. But since then, it's dropped to 8 seconds. And to put things in perspective, a goldfish has the attention span of 9 seconds. And here at Charlotte Chapel, this large city centre church at the heart of Scotland's capital, we welcome, within the doors of this building, many who have become the victims of all this hurry and distraction. Students, workers, business people, teachers, medics, politicians. And it has an inevitable impact upon our spiritual lives upon our walk with Jesus. The magazine Christian Today carried an article about the obstacles to growth survey of over 20,000 Christians across the globe where the author identified busyness as a major distraction from spiritual life. This was his hypothesis. It may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness hurry and overload, which leads in turn to number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives. Are any of you identifying here? Which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how we live, 
which leads to number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins again. You see, the danger is that although Charlotte Chapel faithfully and carefully teaches the Bible and takes great care to apply it practically, the sheer busyness of life in this digital age is shriveling our spiritual lives. We're not the people we want to be. We rush from one activity to another. We wear the mask. We're conscious that the outward performance doesn't match the inward reality. And we don't know how to change. That's why for the next couple of weeks we're turning our attention to Ephesians 5 verses 15 to 20. It's a passage that really is the climax of Paul's argument in that particular letter. And although Paul, as you can see, if you have, your Bible is open in front of you, those of you with the phones, you just have to scroll a little further, um, you can see that he goes on to write about mutual submission in marriage and work from chapter 5, verse 21 to chapter 6, verse 9. And he then encourages them in that famous passage to put on the full armor of God. That's in chapter 6, verse 10 to verse 20. But the natural climax of his argument is in the paragraph that we're looking at this morning. Now, he's already given the theological, the doctrinal principles for Christ-honoring, disciple-making behavior in those first three chapters. He emphasizes there the unity that we have in Christ. And because of that unity in Christ, the one who's broken down the barriers, we are united to Christ and we're united to one another. By the way, if you're not here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, we long this for, this, for you to know this, for yourself to, to know the barriers broken down, that barrier between you and God, your sin, your rebellion. We long that you would know peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that it has impact on the horizontal level as well. Your relationships with others get transformed when you know peace uh, with God. So you have that doctrinal emphasis, but then in chapters 4 to 5, he goes on to spell out what it would look like in practice. It's going to be characterized by mutual help and by godly speech and by holy behavior. And he draws it together in chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, beginning with this connecting phrase where he says, be very careful then. Be very careful then. In the light of everything we've said before, be very careful then how you live. And the whole purpose of this sort of living is so that we might be, as he comes to its climax, the conclusion, the goal, verse 20, always, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how does he bridge from verse 15 so we get to verse 20, what are the summary commands that get us to be the sort of believers that we want to be, that we know we, we should be? How do we live those joyous, Christ-glorifying lives in this busy digital age? Well, there are two major commands. Number one, make the most of every opportunity. Number two, be filled with the Spirit. 
And we're going to look at what it means to be filled with the Spirit next Sunday. Hope you're going to be with us for that. But this morning, we're going to consider what it means to make the most of every opportunity. So let's get to verses 15 to 16. Paul says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Look, we need to say two things about the words being used here. When Paul says, making the most of every opportunity, he uses an expression that means to buy back or to redeem. That's why the older ones amongst us who remember how the authorized version translates it will remember that phrase, redeeming the time. It's got it right with that sense of redeeming, buying back the time. But the other thing we equally need to notice is actually the Greek word isn't the Greek word for time. He uses actually another word that means a season or an opportunity or a limited but significant period. It was a 19th century German theologian who summarized it like this. Watch the time and make it your own so as to control it as merchants look out for opportunities and accurately choose out the best goods. Serve not the time but command it and it shall do what you approve. I I, I like that. But more modern theologians put it like this in the New Bible Commentary. The powers of evil have a firm grip on humankind in this age, leading it into self-indulgent disobedience. But Christians are to order their lives and priorities to God's glory. In other words, there's a battle that's going on over our use of time. This sin-drenched age doesn't want us to get serious about using the time we have for our good and for the glory of God. It would rather just let us slide into habits that eat up time but accomplish nothing. Let me uh, illustrate what I mean. And uh, by the way, this is where a writer called John Mark coma has proved to be very useful and much of what I'll be saying has been prompted by him. He quotes Philip Zimbardo's recent research on demise of guys, that was the name of the paper, which reveals that the average guy spends 10,000 hours playing video games by the age of 21. So the average guy has spent 10,000 hours playing video games by the age of 21. Coma remarks this, and I'm quoting here, 10,000 hours, my mind jumps to the research around this rule. In 10,000 hours, you could master any craft or become an expert in any field, from Sumerian archaeology to Olympic water polo, or even the history of theology in the 17th uh, century. You could get your bachelor's degree or your master's degree. You could memorize the New Testament. Or you could beat level four of Call of Duty. Or I suppose we could insert Fortnite or Minecraft there. And how we spend our time is how we spend our lives. It's who we become or don't become. Coma goes on. Charles Chu calculated that the average person reads 200 to 400 words per minute. 
At that speed, we could all read 200 books a year if we spent just one hour, nine minutes a day reading. Sounds like a lot, doesn't it? You know, one hour, nine minutes, could I really set that sort of time aside? But can you guess how much time the average American, this is the average American, I don't know if it's true of the average uh, Edinburgh resident, it, it may be, how much time the average American spends on social media each year? The figure is one hour, 56 minutes per day. And on TV, it's five hours, four minutes per day. Meaning for just a fraction of the time we give to social media and television, we could all become avid readers to the nth degree. Now I realize that may not be your problem. Perhaps you're of an age where those things weren't around in your youth and you didn't get hooked into them in the way that folks today are growing up in them. And when I talk about fortnight, you think it's referring to 14 days. It isn't. It isn't. Or maybe your present life experience is that of juggling life as a sleep-deprived parent. But for many in this congregation, this pressure, these distractions are precisely what they face. The digital age and its attractions have robbed them of time to think and read and pray and worship. A recent survey from Microsoft found that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked, when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. You know, so there aren't the moments of quiet, there aren't those moments of stillness and reflection, no. If I find them, quick, get the phone out. And my friends, let me ask you, how many of you reached for your phones on your daily commute in Edinburgh? And, and how many minutes do you fill with Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or the next level of Candy Crush? And then, of course, we complain that we've no time left to study God's word or to pray for the salvation of the lost because we've been so busy. And the danger is, in this sheer busyness of life, rather than spend time feeding our souls through study of the word and prayer, we end up depending upon a podcast feed or a popular book or a one-page devotional that we read before we rush out the door to work, the five minutes we spent on our devotional, and we think, well, that's good enough. My friend, the reality is, because of that, there is an emptiness in our souls that needs filling. And to do that, we turn instead to the cheap and quick fix, to another glass of wine or to a new show that's streaming online, or our social media feeds, or porn. And we become easy prey for the tempter, just furthering our sense of distance from God and our souls. <laughs> I can imagine you starting to scream out, Andy, enough, look, enough. We get the point. We don't need any more illustrations or examples. We know we're overly distracted and preoccupied in this digital age, but 
what's the answer? How do we become people who are, as Ephesians 5 verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we combat the attractions of this age and reorder our lives to the glory of God and the good of our souls? Well, forgive me for the stark simplicity of the answer. But it's Jesus. And it's as we look at his perfect, intentional, joy-filled, unhurried, focused life that we gain insights we all so desperately need. We can be so good at remembering his preaching, but so often overlook his practice. So there are four headings I want to use, and these will only be able to hint at areas that we need to consider in case you're looking at the clock and you think he's just finished his introduction. Oh dear. Look, um, I've got four things to say. They're important things I want to say, but uh, I can't deal with these things in any depth. What I am praying and hoping is that you will take these things and you will try and work out what it means for you in your own life and experience. Best to try and chat it over with someone else. If you're here with a spouse, talk it over with your spouse. If you're here with a friend, talk it over with your friend. And just see to what extent you can weave these things into your daily life. So the first thing I'd say is this. Retreat and reflect. Retreat and reflect. You see, we're rarely alone. There's always sounds or distractions. Even if we live on our own, it's quite likely we have the radio or television on in the background. You know, it used to be it was only the shower when you would be quiet and on your own. But even now, of course, you can get waterproof radios, waterproof speakers. So even in the shower, there is noise surrounding you so you don't have to think. But when you come to the life of Jesus, you find a man who regularly made time to be alone. It happened after his baptism when he went into the wilderness for 40 days. It happened in the course of his ministry. We read this in Mark 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5, verses 15 to 16. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It happened with his followers. Mark 6, verses 30 to 32. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. The influential theologian Henri Nouwen said this, without solitude, 
it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. So I make absolutely no apology for saying that the practice known as having a quiet time is more relevant now than it has ever been. We need to build into our lives, probably first thing in the morning, deliberate time to read the Bible, listen to God, and speak to Him in prayer with no distractions, no noise, no alerts. Get the tablet out of the room. Get the phone out of the room so that you are alone with God. Friends, if we're serious about this, if, if we're serious about trying to recover our lives in this digital age, we need to retreat and reflect. Secondly, we need to rest and refrain. We need to rest and refrain. You see, we're being driven forward all the time by a cacophony of pressures, building up in us a sense of restlessness. But in Jesus' life as a perfect Jew was the regular rhythm of a Sabbath, a one day in seven rest from the pressures of life, a practice that was instituted by God at creation. And although plenty of rules and regulations got built up around this principle, Jesus makes it clear in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath principle was designed for our good, for our flourishing, not to be a battleground for killjoys. And by definition, the Sabbath is a day when you literally stop. It's part of the creation design. And it's part of God's picture truth showing us that we can stop working for our salvation and rest instead entirely on what he has done for us in Christ. And my brothers and sisters, if we're to fight against the distractions, against the busyness of this digital age, we need to find ways to have a weekly Sabbath. I, I, in one sense, I don't care when you take it. The principle, I think, is bigger. A time to rest and refrain from the things that have been driving us along. Now, we haven't got the time to unpack all the things we could say. And I can imagine a thousand and one questions emerging in your minds. So could I suggest you talk this over with others and work out what it really means in practice to follow this essential principle? And let me lob in a quote from Eugene Peterson for you to think about. He said this, On a day off, you don't work for your employer, in theory, but you still work. You run errands, catch up around your house or apartment, pay the bills, make an Ikea run, there goes four hours, and you play. You see a movie, kick the soccer ball with friends, go shopping, cycle through the city, and that's great stuff, all of it. I love my day off but those activities don't make a Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean for us in reality, in the busyness of our lives, to rest and refrain, to stop the sheer 
busyness of life in this digital age swamping us in everything we do. Rest and refrain. Number three, resist and reform. Resist and reform. You see, the digital age drives us on to earn more so we can accumulate more, so we can have nice stuff that we never have the time to enjoy. Whereas the teaching of Jesus radically breaks the connection. Luke 12, 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He said this in Mark, uh, Matthew 6, verses 24 to 25. The Sermon on the Mount. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? You see, the danger we face is that we assume our happiness is inextricably bound up with what we have, and, and, and that's what gives life meaning. Whereas the words of Jesus reveal that if we've bought into thinking in that way, if we've bought into the lie, look, my friends, more stuff does not mean more happiness. And to fight this, we need to develop a healthy distrust of the advertising world, of all the pressures that we feel, that we hear, that tell us we should accumulate more. Look, basically, if you need to consult Marie Kondo over organizing your stuff, then you have too much stuff. You see, virtually everyone in this room is in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. Did you realize that? You are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people. And yet we're being driven on by, I must have more. Rather, we need to resist the lies... And we need to reform how we do life. We need a greater simplicity and we need a greater generosity. Listen to these words from Paul written to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 18. Command those who are rich in this present world, that's us, not to be arrogant, not to put, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. My brothers and sisters, go figure. We can't go into it more, but... Oh, how we could, how we should be thinking about how we live a simpler lifestyle than so many of us have been trapped in at this moment. But my last heading is this, rejoice and refuel. Rejoice and refuel. You see, let's quickly finish where we started. Ephesians 5, 15 to 20. And remind ourselves what we want to become in our busy and distracted age. Ephesians 5.20, remember, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, when I'm weaned off the lies and the distractions of this digital age, I'll be able to take each moment of my life, whatever might be going on in it, and turn it to praise and worship. There is not going to be a moment of my life where I am so taken up, as it were, with the digital scene, the digital background, that I am not able to be conscious of God and acknowledge him as the sovereign, gracious God and turn this to praise and worship. You see, I'll have an eternal perspective on all that I do. I'll be conscious of a gracious, sovereign God who loves me more than words can tell. That's how I want to live my life here and now with all the pressures that are pushed down upon us. And it'll all be filtered and focused through a growing knowledge and delight in my Saviour, Jesus Christ. As I spend time in the Bible thinking and reflecting upon its great overarching salvation plan, I'll grow more and more amazed at such a wonderful Saviour. My brothers, my sisters, these are the people we should be. Don't get captured by the age in which we live. Don't let the digital age swamp you. Don't just blindly slide into that way of life. Listen to God's word. Take control. Follow the pattern of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I don't know what that's going to mean for you. I don't know how it's going to look in your particular life experience. Kath and I have been challenge by working this through and we've got a holiday coming up in about a month's time we're going to take that week and we're just going to be thinking through what does that mean for us if you think I'm preaching to you you've got to understand I'm preaching more to myself what's it going to look like for me for Kath for our home what's it going to look like for you in your home what's it going to look like if you're here and you're a parent and you're bringing up kids and there is this massive pressure of the digital age what patterns, what habits do you want to establish in their lives? What are they going to see in you? And next Sunday morning, we'll grasp how the glorious truth of God dwelling within his children by the Holy Spirit is absolutely central to such a life. Let's pray.